Of all the unsolved mysteries of human civilization, one of the biggest may be, how come our energy and propulsion technologies have barely advanced over the last 100 years? Yes, efficiencies have somewhat improved, as well as cleanliness and computerized interfaces, but the crux of the issue is that we are still effectively using the same energy generation and propulsion mechanisms as we were 100 years ago in terms of cars and aircraft, oil, gas, coal, and Bernoulli's principle. Eisenhower warned us about the military-industrial complex. I wonder if that has anything to do with it. And I wonder if there's any kinds of technologies on the horizon that may help us get past this mysterious embargo. Luckily, there are good men in our society working on getting helpful tech out to the public. One of those men is Steve Quast, a retired Lieutenant General from the United States Air Force. He was a major voice within the military during the early years of Trump's first presidential administration calling for the creation of the Space Force. Having competitive advantage in space is crucial for our future of economic, technological, and exploratory discovery. General Quast knew that and worked to help America advance in that domain. Now, after retiring in 2019, he's gone into the private sector and is working with ambitious companies looking to bring cheap energy and clean water to the masses and help with advancements in space. I recently had the opportunity and honor to meet Steve Quast, and he was gracious enough to accept the offer to appear on my podcast to discuss his thoughts on our culture and experiences with revolutionary technologies. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by subscribing on Local, Subscribestar, Substack, or Patreon for just a few bucks per month. Each of those platforms will be listed down below, and your help in bringing this content to the people is greatly appreciated. Now for episode 23 of the Conspiracy Analytica podcast, Revolutionary Tech in the Space Domain, with retired Lieutenant General Steve Quast. General, it's an honor to have you here. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to have this conversation with me. So... For those unfamiliar with your background, your story, I find your story to be quite fascinating and your upbringing helped you to formulate unique perspectives about what's going on in society. So for those out there unfamiliar with you and your background, why don't you take a few minutes to explain explain it for us? Yeah, thank you. And thanks for allowing me to uh, have this conversation. I think it's, a, it's an important one for the moment and time that we all live and uh, for the things that we value and fight for. So I will uh, be brief about my history and just uh, try to help describe uh, why our backgrounds give us unique perspectives that can be helpful. So I was uh, born to a, uh, a family where my dad was a pastor, but he was also a uh, cultural anthropologist. And uh, when I was about four months old, they decided to go to Africa and uh, they were going to be a part of a tribe that they, uh, they they found that was about the furthest from Western influence as possible so that he could chart the language and the culture um, as purely uh, separate from Western civilization as possible. And so that's where I grew up. You know, my first moments of consciousness were uh, on 10,000 10, feet up on Mount Cameroon. And, uh, and, and it was, uh, you know, far back. So it, it, uh, there were no schools or anything like that. It, it was just, you know, the, the, the basic, uh, tribal living that, uh, I got to be raised by the tribe and uh, grow up in the tribe. And, uh, but my, my father got so ill with malaria and filariasis and dysentery and all of the other, uh, things that happened over there. We came back when I was about 10 years old. 
But that was enough uh, to really give me a, a conscious perspective of a different worldview, a different uh, cultural perspective. And when I came back to America, it was um, it was almost a, an epiphany as I got to see our Constitution and understand uh, how we govern ourselves and to protect ourselves and make ourselves healthy and prosperous. And I knew that I wanted to be a part of defending that. Now, you know, everybody in my family thought I would be a missionary, but I, I always had a, I also had a passion for flying. So I thought I'd be a missionary pilot. But uh, then when I discovered that there was an Air Force Academy that would teach you to, uh, that would give you a full education and uh, teach you to fly and allow you to defend your, your constitutional republic, uh, I was all in. And so I uh, applied and was lucky enough to get a, a nomination from my congressman there in California, Congressman Wayne Grisham of the 33rd District. He's passed away now, right? God rest his soul. And... Um, and I thought I would just be in for a short time, but I found it to be uh, just a perfect fit. And and so that's my background. Uh, but what I will tell you is that background has propelled me into uh, this arena of being a national security professional. And a national security professional or somebody that wears the uniform of our country is their primary job is to never have to use violence ever as an American society, because we are so strategic at understanding geopolitics, culture, technology, history, human nature, uh, that we can out-strategize any opponent and uh, never have to fire a shot, never have to bring violence to bear. Uh, if we use violence, we have failed. And uh, either we didn't understand our or we didn't understand technology, or we didn't understand human nature, or we didn't understand the culture. And having grown up in a different culture, it gives you just a very unique lens to look at everything through. And it helps you, uh, it reveals where there's cultural disconnects, where there's communication disconnects. And uh, so that's been a real blessing um, as I've gone through my life. Um, so I um, I studied astronautical engineering, so rocket science, but primarily because uh, even back then I could see that space was going to be a very powerful piece of the future of our world. And so my entire career has been uh, advocating for space, understanding the technology of space, and understanding how that would play into uh, great power competition, uh, the, the the clash of civilizations, of ideologies, and uh, ultimately this reality that war is is something that uh, is defined in the American culture as some decisive battle and some event, and then you go back home and you're at peace. Um, the more consistent reality of history is that Life is about a constant struggle for competitive advantage, primarily competitive advantage so that your values are the ones that are abided by by you and others. You know, the nature of power is very interesting, and I got to see it in Africa amongst tribes and people, and I got to, I got to see it in the geopolitical realm as the general officer in charge of policy and strategy for the international uh, arena at the Joint Staff, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I will tell you that uh, power is uniquely interesting because if you have it, your values rule. And if you don't have it, you must submit. And it is shocking for Americans to hear 
hear that because most Americans have been raised, all of us that were born after World War II, uh, have been raised in such an anomaly of history, such a unique uh, anomaly of history, because America has been so unilaterally dominant economically, militarily, socially, politically, that there were no comers of any size that could compete with us. Uh, there was a small period where we thought Russia was going to be a competitive uh, uh, challenger, and that was the Cold War. But even then, they didn't rise to even 30% of our economic throw weight as an American economy. And that economy is the foundation of all our future security. But now we live in an age where even though China is, uh, is its economy is slightly smaller than America, they actually have more economic throw weight than America because they don't have a a republic and a balance of power and a yearly budget that has to be argued over in Congress, which are all good things that our founding fathers uh, set up to make sure we don't do anything stupid and don't do anything too fast. Uh, but China doesn't have that problem and they can move fast because the Communist Party controls everything and it can dictate winners and losers and and funnel tremendous money to a very strategic strategy and uh and and actually move very fast. So that that's uh, my background and why uh, this is a unique time in history because China truly has defined space as their objective to dominate the global economy by 2049. And they're on pace to do that even earlier than that, but that's their, their goal because that's the 100 year history of the communist party. And uh, and and so and now that they have more economic throw weight than America uh, and they have insidiously been uh, uh, weaseling their way into our society by buying up influence in universities in media in land in food in in telecommunication in technologies that are becoming essential for the human race, um, they uh, are postured to be able to. Uh, make America slip to second, third, and fourth economy in the world silently and insidiously, uh, where they win this fight of competitive economic advantage uh, so that their values rule without ever firing a shot. Gotcha. Thank you. So let's see. As your military career progressed, you went to the Air Force Academy, and from what I understand, you started flying F-15 Strike Eagles, had quite a few combat hours doing that. And then you, as your military career progressed, what started gravitating you towards the space domain and how important the space domain is in terms of economic advantage, infrastructure, power and energy, and these sorts of things? Yeah, well, it started uh, very early and at the academy, uh, but even before that. Um, and it was, um, and again, it came from, I think, my upbringing in Africa where we didn't have technology. I mean, the technology we had was a, you know, a, a pick to plow the ground, you know, and water and straw and mud to make bricks to build a thatch roof home and, um, and, and swords and, and spears to hunt for food. Uh, so when I saw the technologies of America in the 60s or early 70s, when we came back from Africa, that was about 70, 72, um, it, um, it, it really started getting me interested in how technology uh, changes the fate of nations. 
uh, whether it was gunpowder or uh, the internal combustion engine, the nuclear weapon, uh, fire, you know. So I, I started studying that. And as I studied, started studying civilizations, I started realizing how unique our constitution was. And, and so when I went to the Air Force Academy, I, I could see already the trend lines reading the art of war, uh, uh, you know, on war, all of the, the major uh, documents that talk about how we defend our civilization. I could see the trend lines uh, almost immediately taking shape that, uh, you know, land and sea, uh, you know, had been figured out. And then in 1947, we birthed the Air Force, uh, which uh, allowed us to understand and dominate the air. Uh, and that space was the next high ground. And uh, we had not really taken the first step. So that's why space became um, a real interest of mine, because, again, being a good national security professional, you have to understand the four basic elements, and that is human nature, culture that derives from human nature, uh, history, and technology, and how those things shape geopolitics, competition, and prosperity, health, and security for a country. And what kind of, during your career, both in either the military or the private sector, what kind of technologies from space could be revolutionizing society right now? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll bring up two, but there are others that are emerging that people uh, may not be able to see quite yet if they aren't tracking the engineering benches of space companies out there across the world. But, um, you know, the two things that profoundly change the human condition are information. So you know what's going on around you. And so your actions are actually consistent with your values, because if you don't have the information, knowledge of truth, uh, you can be man manipulated to act in ways that are counter to your best interests and to your values. So you can see why the information war, uh, the narrative war, uh, is so powerful and important in the history of mankind. It's not something new. It's always been that way. We're just rediscovering new tools like the Internet and, uh, you know, S Starlink or whatever it might be that are uh, accentuating the ability for every human being to have access to information around the globe. And we're like teenagers, all clumsy with our muscles on information trying to figure out how we triangulate truth because everybody's telling a little bit of truth and sometimes a lot of lot of lie and uh how do you know how can you even trust that uh i'm talking to you right now and you're not an ai you know um uh you know developed character that looks exactly like who you should be so you can see how we are tippy you know we're tiptoeing into very dangerous territory but Information is one of them from space, and we already know that. Um, GPS, you know, you, you know exactly where you're at all the time uh, because of the constellation of satellites, and that's information that can be powerful. It can make a company more effective and efficient with transportation fuel and costs. You don't get lost and waste time trying to find a place, but if that goes away and you've become dependent on it, now it's a vulnerability. Um, energy is the other one, um, and, you know, people think, well, how do we get energy from space? Well, uh, Right now, we're not doing it in full, but we are surely experimenting with it. And this goes back to Tesla, not Tesla, the car company, but Tesla, the genius that was uh, inventing electricity and the method of delivering electricity the same as Edison was. And Edison kind of won, you know, they, there were two competing ideas about how you deliver energy. Uh, Edison was a wire where the electricity would flow through the wire into your structure or your home. And then, you know, you would have electricity. And that's what we adopted. 
primarily because that was an easy one to monetize, meaning I could put a meter on that wire and charge you an electrical bill, uh, and that's how the economy ran. Tesla's idea was superior, but they couldn't figure out how to monetize radio waves because it is a known truth, and, and Tesla invented it. The ability to deliver energy uh, through radio waves that are as safe for you and me as your FM, AM radio. But we have built an entire industry on things that are adapted around a wire with high voltage electricity that'll kill you if you're not careful. And we've all become accustomed to electricity being dangerous or energy being dangerous. Uh, but that is only because we chose that model. And when you choose a model in technology, you tend to live with it longer than it's relevant because industry grows up around it. Lobby groups, lobby, jobs, industry, you know, it's all good stuff. But try jumping to a new technology when an entire industry is built on an, an idea that is now past its prime. And you'll find how viciously people will fight for the paradigms of the past because they're getting a paycheck and feeding their children doing it. So it's not a bad thing about human nature, but if we ever want to evolve and leapfrog against, uh, past our enemies that are developing new technologies, we as a society need to find ways of leapfrogging into the future. And in America, that mechanism is the free market and entrepreneurs that can develop things without too much government regulation, oversight, and, uh, you know, uh, micromanaging with a 3,000 foot screwdriver and allowing free people uh, to freely design new ideas and test them out. So those are the two to answer your question. Energy uh, is going to come from space because you can now turn the sun's energy that you can capture on a satellite in space. You can convert it to radio waves, send it down to earth, and now everybody on earth can have almost free and abundant energy once you build that infrastructure in space. You don't have to build power plants. You don't have to have power lines or telephone poles. You don't need to have all this danger around you. Every device, every home, every car, everything can be powered from free energy from the sun uh, delivered from space. And, it, and the radio waves do not attenuate it like solar panels. Solar panels are very inefficient because they have to wait for the sun's energy to come through the weather and clouds and the atmosphere. And so by the time you convert energy from the sun into electricity with a solar panel, you're lucky to hit 20% efficiencies. With the technology that's current, currently being uh, tested with the, uh, the Air Force and the Air Force Research Lab and, uh, and others like China, they're achieving 80% efficiency already because the, when you convert it to radio waves in space where it's 24-7 sunshine at high intensity and you beam it to Earth and then convert it into electricity, now you're talking 80% efficiency. That, think about that, you know? Uh, that kind of jump in efficiency on energy because there's even our, our power plants, whether it's nuclear or otherwise, our power plants are only about 20 to 30% efficiency already as it is. And then all of the loss of electricity through the power lines coming to your home. All of that uh, can be eliminated with this superior idea once we get the regulation out of the way and allow people to test it so that we know that it's safe and effective. There seems to be a fight, not just currently, but it seems to have been this way for decades, if not centuries. There's a fight between the power structures that want to keep centralization. They want to keep 
whether it's information centralized, power centralized, that way they can maintain control. And there's a fight right now from we the people to decentralize these things, decentralize information through social media. Social media is a blessing and a curse. You can use social media to brainwash yourself, but you can also use it to learn a lot and learn a lot of truth outside the centralized structures. And the same thing with energy. And I think that's one thing that Nikola Tesla is working on that he may have been censored and suppressed for was trying to create more of a decentralized energy system. Yeah. Um, and through my research into disruptive or alternative energy technologies, not just Tesla, but I've come across uh, numerous inventors who have developed very efficient, you were describing numbers, 80, 90%. Some of these devices, uh, maybe some of these inventors were snake oil salesmen, maybe some not, but some of these devices, I hesitate to use the term free energy because it's not free. You have to right. take the time and money and energy to develop these devices, but sometimes they seem to be over unity, meaning they're producing more energy than it takes to run them. So over a hundred percent efficiency. Um, is this ever something that you've come across in the private sector or throughout your career? Well, I will tell you that this uh, this concept that you're talking about is real. This um, this tendency to centralize um, essentials of life. We've centralized our food supply chain, our energy, our water, our information, and uh, th those are natural tendencies that uh, are born out of human nature. And the fact that uh, when you uh, give power to a politician to govern. Um, the, you know, the human nature is power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And the more power people have, the more power they try to get and the more they try to control that power and not let somebody take it away. So uh, this is why uh, Tesla was not only a genius on technology, but he understood that democratizing power in the form of essentials um, is really this way of protecting against human nature's tendency to have governments overreach, over control, and eventually become tyrant, tyr tyrannical, okay? And we see this throughout history. This is why communism is so dangerous. This is why socialism is so dangerous, is because it fast-tracks this central planning. And the reason it's bad, and all you have to do is read uh, The Road to Serfdom as one of the iconic books that describes how this played out with Hitler and Germany, and how it's playing out, in, and you can see how it's playing out with us right now. Um, how it played out in China, and it's it's human nature. But uh, this idea of uh, democratizing and uh, down to the human level, the control and the power to control the essentials of life, food, water, you know, clean air, <laughs> if you will, uh, shelter, uh, health, you know, um, and, and, and information. If you can democratize these things and put the power in the hands of the people, it becomes another defensive network against the government that will try to grow to be tyrannical. Our founding fathers put in place our, uh, you know, uh, freedoms like the freedom of speech, the freedom to bear arms, the freedom to gather, um, the free speech. Uh, you know, the uh, the uh, I mentioned that twice because it's so darn important, this information uh, factor. And, and what we see is the government doing what governments generally do, and that is try to grab more and more control. And our, our country is now looking at this and saying, wait a minute, that is inconsistent with our Constitution. So, yes, we need to democratize these things. And space is already doing that. For example, 
there's a satellite company right now called Link. Okay. And it has developed a satellite that will trick your cell phone that's in your pocket right now to think that satellite is a cell tower. And so without any additional investment, you can now have a subscription and you you can talk at the bottom of the Grand Canyon to your buddy in the middle of Australia where there's no cell towers, no electricity, nothing. Uh, why? Because it's a space-based architecture where very few satellites do the job of a huge investment uh, on, on the land. So that's a way of democratizing information where everybody can have it anywhere on the planet, even if you live at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And you don't need, right now we have over 800,000 cell towers in America, and you still get one bar or zero bars in West Texas or at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. The only thing you sometimes get is GPS because those are satellites. So yes, this idea of democratizing our supply chains and democratizing everything, the essentials of life, information, food, water, um, you know, um, energy, information and healthcare, um, transportation, you can start democratizing these things uh, and you have a winning solution that no government can take over your country. Do you think there's sort of a fight or a battle within the government or even the private sector, the military, between entrenched powers who don't want these kinds of disruptive technologies out there and those who are trying to bring them out to society? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that there are uh, it's, it's complicated. And again, it's all rooted in human nature. Um, and I would say there's essentially three to four levels of that, and I'll, I'll kind of describe them. But this oversimplifies it a little bit, but, uh, but it helps people understand why this happens. Because, for example, one of the chief technology officers that uh, uh, was part of a company I used to be a part of uh, that was um, developing water solutions for people, when he was a teenager with his brother, they developed an engine uh, that was so revolutionary and the, it, it worked on hydrogen. This was back in the day. So, you know, in the 70s, they took it to Detroit, where you could have an engine that only weighs 20 pounds that had 400 horsepower that got 300 miles to the gallon. And it was safe and no pollution. And uh, they, you know, they pushed so hard for that. They actually got death threats. Okay. And, and Detroit, some of the honest people in Detroit told them, hey, listen, we have billions of dollars of investment in supply chain, manufacturing, jobs, parts, um, and, and sales uh, globally. Uh, this will literally make $10 billion worth of capital investment go away tomorrow. And we can't afford that. We, we can't afford that. Um, and so you are not welcome here. Your idea is not welcome. So that gives you an example, a personal example I know of an engine that I, uh, you know, I've not just heard about it and seen it. I know it. Okay. And those exist in all kinds of industries around the world. And you hear about them and you're wondering to this question you're asking, is there a struggle? And there's the, here are the layers for that struggle. The first layer is what Eisenhower warned us about, and that's the military industrial congressional complex. Now, uh, Eisenhower was being polite uh, in his original speech. He put Congress in there, but he took it out. And when he said it, it was the military industrial complex. This is the idea that when an inventor invents a better widget and it's useful to the military, then the military asks for it, a company builds it, Congress then defends it, lobbyists grow up. For example, the F-35, uh, 
a part of that is built in every state in the union. Why? Not because it had to be, because now you have jobs in every union, you have or every state in the union, you have politicians, congressional members, uh, members of Congress and the Senate defending those jobs and that weapon system. But and then lobby groups from Lockheed Martin or whatever, you know, uh, continue perpetuating that both in the Department of Defense and in Congress. And if some new idea comes in, they're like, hey, be very dangerous. That's developmental. You know, you're risking your national security here. That's a bad idea. You know, keep doubling down on this this widget, this tool. Um, and so that's the first layer, the military industrial complex, military industrial congressional complex that will defend to the death the current paradigm of what you build. And, and generally, it, it becomes a war or a crisis or some kind of unexpected black swan event where everybody is like, what the hell just happened there? And then when they go back and do the forensics, they're upset that Congress, you know, there were ideas out there that would have prevented the crisis, but nobody was willing to take the risk to actually uh, do them because they disrupted people's bottom line, their pockets, and the people that are getting rich right now on ideas that worked in the past but are becoming irrelevant for the future. So that's the first layer. The second layer is more sinister and that's ideological. There are people that uh, hate America and they hate our the free will. They 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 are uh, they they believe that we are building on uh, greed and that uh, we just need an ideology where everybody shares everything they have and we'll all get along. And if we were angels, that would work. Everybody knows that, okay? Our hearts are good and we want to share everything with everybody. But if we do that, only the evil will rule the world and those that are benevolently generous will be stolen from by people that are evil. Now, there are fewer evil people than there are good people. So we have the advantage globally. There are more good people than there are bad people. This is why democratization of all these things is good. But back to the layers here of why there are technologies out there that would work and they are not allowed in or they are killed. So the first is the military industrial congressional complex. The second is ideological. There are people that hate America, hate the fact that we give freedom to the individual, which is important because it's one biblical two, it's uh, based on human nature and the fact that we are moral creatures and we have built the society under the belief that we are one nation under God. OK, and that God has revealed human nature. Natural law is how our founding fathers talked about it. But ultimately, it means that man can only be happy if he is free. And that means he, she, kids, you know, everybody. Uh, man is covers the entire gamut, just like it does in the Bible. Um, and so when you think about this now, this second layer, there are ideological people out there in the world that are doing everything they can to stop America from having a competitive advantage economically, because they know if they can take our legs out from under us economically, they can take our, their legs out from us ideologically, and eventually they can make America the, the communist state that they think it should be, okay? Then there's a third layer, uh, so that's the second layer. Then there's a third layer of, um, uh, of people that are just greedy within our system. They don't have any ideological uh, bent, okay? So they're not in this espionage and and uh, the work to try to undercut anything positive and good for the economy of America. They are just people that are greedy, trying to take advantage of whatever is there, 
and they will be they will basically break the law. They will lie, steal, and cheat to get a competitive advantage. And oftentimes that's killing the baby in the crib before it becomes an adult to do great things for the health, prosperity, and security of America. Okay. So there's that layer too. And then there's the layer of fear, I call it, the layer of fear. And this is real. You have an entrepreneur in California that's invented this engine that will just make everything that transports, you know, affordable for everybody on the planet. And uh, and it's such a good thing and no pollution. Yet they are, they are bullied by whoever that is wringing their hands saying, oh my gosh, you're gonna disrupt the industry. You know, they're gonna come after you. Uh, why, why, they're gonna steal all your money. They're gonna steal your ideas, your patents. Why would you go through this cactus patch of torture to try to usher something in so disruptive? And so fear keeps a cap on many of our geniuses. And that's why you see a whole generation that has basically said, I'm gonna invent this and I'm gonna give it away for free because I, I want the world to adopt it. And if it's adopted somewhere else outside of America, outside of these layers of defensive mechanisms to secure the paradigm of the present and not and, and the paradigms of the past and not usher in new paradigms for the delivery of these essentials for life, um, they give it away. So somebody adopts it in you know, New Zealand. And then eventually, when I, an idea finally gets in the brains of the average person and they understand this is cheaper, better, better, faster and smarter and it's available, they will get it. OK, if they're free people. And so Americans will eventually adopt it. And these people trying to uh, preserve their own power or money uh, will eventually lose that battle. And that's why you see so many people um, making sure they get to the American people first, whether it's political, technological, ideological, they're getting to the American people first. And generally the best way to do that is through the education system, which also has been hijacked by ideology, ideological uh, agendas so that they can grow a whole generation of people to become CEOs that believe that free will is not a good thing and that everybody should obey uh, the ruler of the government who has your best interests in mind, quote unquote, until you your freedoms are taken away and you can't send your kids to that school because you have a gun <laughs> or you can't shop at the good store because you've been buying books that talk about God. You can see where it goes and it has gone that way throughout all of history. And America is at that point where we have a choice. Do we allow it to continue to go that way, which is a natural course of historical governments, or do we take it back and do a reset for the American society, one nation under God? Great way to describe it through those four different layers. I also find ignorance to be quite the hurdle as well, which we could probably throw into that fear category when you have an inventor come out with a unique sort of engine or unique propulsion technology the society, scientists, physicists out there, they'll poo-poo it and say it's not possible, it's fake, you're a snake oil salesman, just because they don't have any kind of expanded consciousness or new way of thinking and how that might be possible. Um, through, my, through my research into these sorts of alternative energy technologies, I also find propulsion to be very fascinating, very interesting. And some of my research has delved into the possibility of electrostatics or electromagnetics being coupled with gravity in some way. 
Um, have you ever come across any kind of alternative propulsion technologies like this? And do you think this entrenched establishment is trying to prevent any kind of exotic propulsion technologies from coming out? Right. Well, the, uh, two two layers to that. The first is there are incredible ideas that are out there uh, that have not come to the forefront, um, and some of them are incremental innovation. And and so I, let me define the terms here because it, it's helpful in this conversation. Incremental innovation is where you take an you take a car engine and you make it a little bit more efficient. Okay, that's innovation. Uh, it's incremental. But there are kids in high school. I'm mentoring this one kid that's in high school that has uh, come. Up up with a design and uh, uh, you know literally the plans for a jet engine that uh, is 90% more efficient than the current engines we have. I mean, just amazing. But he couples it with multiple disciplines, not only the fuel and the chemical nature of the fuel, but also uh, the design of the engine and then the design of the structural aircraft um, as, that would essentially usher in an, a, an incremental innovation in aviation to make the cost of flying uh, equivalent to the cost of driving your car, okay, uh, and, uh, and 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 less. So that's one uh, layer that gets uh, squashed. The second layer is revolutionary innovation. Okay, this is this is where you literally like uh, you know the ones you just described, where you usher in a whole new way. Uh, th this is um, uh, really incredibly important, and um, I I. Uh, I will tell you that both happen and both get squashed for these same reasons we talked about. Um, some of them are insidious, some of them are not. Uh, some of them are, you know, out of fear. Some of them are out of ignorance. You know, there's a whole host of things that are uh, are behind it. So I will uh, tell you that uh, th they both do happen. I have seen, uh, you know, what I'll tell you is I've seen these inventions in different states, both incremental innovation and disruptive or revolutionary innovation. And I've seen them both squashed. Uh, many of the revolutionary ones I have not uh, seen personally, like I did this engine, for example, uh, but it uh, I know they exist. And we, just like with quantum, we know so little about our universe, so little. Uh, you know, what we know is probably one one billionth of what we could know over time. And so whether it's, um, quantum that essentially proves to us that time travel is possible, you know, where you you see an element that moves uh, faster than the speed of light, meaning it can move from one spot in the universe to the other instantaneously. And we have proof of that. And that if it is discovered, um, it will rewrite history, meaning it never happened and it finds another way of getting to that destination. These are things we have proven with quantum. We don't know how it happens. We don't know why it happens, but it is evidence of a universe that is so much bigger than we understand. Our, our temporal dimension of time and of the physical world is only our perspective, and it does not take into account the vast uh, majesty of this universe. And so the things you're talking about are part of what we're scratching at as a human race. Brilliant minds that see potential for energy, for information in ways that democratize it and make it accessible to almost everybody for such a little economic price point that uh, nobody can uh, steal it away. 
And uh, so they do exist and we can go down many rat holes or rabbit holes, I would should probably say rabbit trails on some of these specific ideas that you see in the literature. Um, but it, um, it almost always comes up against the reality that we know so little about some of these things. And it takes the human uh, psyche, if you will, the intellectual uh, body of humanity time uh, to dig into them, just like Galileo and what his work was, you know, brought us to where we're at, but it took time. Einstein pointing out things that he said, hey, I didn't get to this, but something's wrong here. And sure enough, we find, you know, what he was talking about. He thought, but the, the community of scientists had not seen it yet, and it took some time. So hopefully that's, um, you know, answers your question without going down the rabbit trails of each one, which, you know, some I have knowledge of, some I do not, uh, but they fit in one of these two categories, and all of them fight against these headwinds of these four layers of defending the paradigms of the past and not allowing the paradigms of the future to come to, come to the forefront. Yeah, I, I would love to have future conversations, future podcasts on you, maybe diving into these rabbit holes and the technical nature of some of these uh, some of these technologies you're describing. And I fully agree that we know very little about reality or about our universe, but as you've been mentioning human nature, and I think human nature, our little egos, we like to tell ourselves that we know more than we really do to make ourselves feel better. But uh, I think we do know actually very little. And looking at it from a different perspective, that's actually fascinating and exciting that we know so little because that means there's so much out there yet to discover. So discussing, you mentioned both incremental advancements in certain industries or technologies and then the revolutionary. With either one, this question is probably more focused towards the revolutionary, but how do we best, how do we best transfer our current system into the future? How do we best integrate our current system with these kinds of technologies that could truly change our paradigm here and work towards more decentralized, free democratized societies? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, people, when you take a look at the history of mankind and, and human nature, so that's why these two studies, you know, human nature, history, and then I add culture and technology, why it's so important to understand human nature. And so when you take a look at success stories where somebody was successful at ushering in a disruptive technology, there were two pathways that were most effective. Uh, the, the, the one is a pathway where you design the technology to benefit the current investment, okay? So for example, uh, solar power from space, here would it be an example. Um, maybe the first step is to uh, have a satellite beam it to a power station where the power company owns that station and they can they can convert those radio waves into electricity and put them through the current power lines, okay? Uh, and then so that's a step where it, it makes the current investment useful, where you can recapitalize, you know, you can uh, you you can basically make money on your investment. And then when they have to replace power lines, they can then beam the power to the house instead of put new power lines in or try to bury them, which is very expensive. So that is a method that very clever technologists have used in the past where they design their disruptive technology and they kind of hide the fact that it's going to be disruptive. They basically just say to the current powers that be, in this case, the power companies, hey, look, now you can have a source going to your power plant uh, with this simple antenna 
uh, and you are now uh, not having to uh, burn coal or a nuclear power plant that's dangerous or, you know, the spent uranium rods that you have to keep cool for the rest of their, your life. Um, and, and they look at it and they say, hey, the business case closes on this. I'll take it. And you've now uh, gotten the, the camel's nose under the tent, okay, because it's fit into the current infrastructure and it, does, it, make, it makes it useful to the current powers. So that's one method. And that's a very, that's a very effective method because then everybody wins, if you will. Um, and you can always find somebody in the current paradigm that is willing to put down a little bit of investment if they see the business case. You know, that's the American way. And that's our free market and uh, our entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial uh, genes in America, you know, the DNA in us. The second is less um, attractive, but it is also very effective, and that is fear, okay? So for example, the Space Force, okay? China built their Space Force long before we built ours. Most people don't know that, but it's because China has understood the power of space for a long time and what it could do to disrupt economies. Because of what we know about the electromagnetic spectrum, um, a constellation of satellites and what they could do to the electron, and that America is dependent on the electron even our water systems stop working if the electrical grid goes down because they're all dependent on SCADA systems and electrical systems that require electricity. So um, so the fear, when, when Congress got to hear the classified briefings of what China was doing in space, as they were impeaching the man that brought them the idea, they were signing a bipartisan National uh, Defense Authorization Act putting into law a space force as a vehicle to start ushering in the technologies required to compete with China. There's an example of fear overcoming political bias, uh, even in cases, the hatred of the man that brought them the idea. But this is where Trump was so visionary and so bold as to be willing to put up with the sarcasm, ridicule, and humiliation that came with the joke about Space Force because his enemies hated him, didn't understand the power of space to our security, our health, and our prosperity. And, uh, and, and he was willing to withstand that because he knew this was going to be a wedge in history that someday history will show defended America against the attack in the electromagnetic spectrum that China could bring our way if they chose to, if they built a space um, infrastructure and we did not. Sometimes you got to give them the shock and awe approach to really shock them awake right. and make them realize that something needs to change. So um, every time you speak, I have multiple questions that I want to ask you. This one, so let's get onto the China subject. It seems over the past probably 20 to 30 years, you can find numerous examples of Chinese spies or foreign nationals somehow getting embedded into defense contractors, aerospace companies, scientific research institutes, and it ends up that they are essentially stealing aerospace secrets, sending it back to China, and then, wow, look at China's progression in stealth technologies, quantum communications, all these sorts of things over just the past decade or two. So... Yep. Could you sort of describe what's going on between China and the U.S. in the realm of uh, aerospace advancement? And has China been stealing a lot of our stuff? 
Well, they have, uh, you know, just take a look at their aircraft that looks like our F-22, you know, their, uh, you know, all their, their rocket that looks like Elon Musk's rocket, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, their, their ability, uh, industrial espionage is a fine art, but there's uh, two broader issues here that really need to start this conversation. The first is that the Chinese people are beautiful people. I mean, uh, they're, you know, they, and they're, they're, every Chinese person is loved by their parents just as much as your parents loved you and just as much as you love the people in your family. We need to uh, differentiate between an ideological government that is forcing um, values inconsistent with human nature on a population and that population of people that have an innate desire to be free. OK, and but propaganda and education are very powerful. So when a young Chinese child is told that the only way they will stay safe, secure, prosperous and um, and healthy is obeying the central, uh, you know, Communist Party, um, they believe it. They you know, it's like a bird in the cage. If you stay in this cage, you'll be free to fly around the cage. You go outside of that cage and you're going to get captured uh, or eaten by the hawk, you know, the, the eagle. Uh, and and so they believe it. They are trapped in their cultural paradigm. And this is where my background uh, makes this contrast between the Chinese culture and our culture very stark. Uh, so that's the first thing to say is that the Chinese people are good people and we want them as a part of uh, this world where every human being is free uh, because that's how God made us. And to, to, to go against God's natural law will eventually cripple people and cripple their happiness their security and, and all these things that make us uh, capable of uh, living up to our full potential. So that's a really important point because people make China into the boogeyman and they're not, okay? It's the Chinese ideological party, the communist party that has um, sold the Chinese people down this uh, trail that uh, all you have to do is subordinate all of your power to us and the government and we'll keep you safe and we will keep you, you fed. Uh, and we see how that ends in communist uh, dictators like, you know, Stalin, Lenin, and so on. And, you know, the Communist Party in China worships those two, Stalin and Lenin, for the, the reasons that they're ideologically aligned with. The government is the only thing that can give you longevity. Uh, and you eventually, and they point to Americans, they see the chaos in their politics. That's what you don't want here. That's why you need to obey the Communist Party. Uh, so that's one. The second is this... Um, this uh, cultural reality in China that they don't think like we think, okay? Um, we think about <clears throat> flash, bang, decisive battle, the Minuteman, you know, you're a citizen one day, you grab a rifle, you defend your country and you go back and you plow your field and grow crops. Um, that's kind of the American um, you know, story, if you will. And, uh, and so if somebody threatens America, you know, we gin up the industrial base and we go at it and uh, then we win and we go back home. Uh, that is not consistent with history. That, that is uh, and China uh, has a different ideological bent. They want to win this war, even if it, take, if it takes three or four hundred years. They want to become the dominant economy on the globe and eventually subordinate America to their will. And that means we pay tribute to China, just like they did back in the Middle Kingdom days. And I can tell you all kinds of historical stories about what happened to China as the Middle Kingdom collapsed and uh, and how it was a self-inflicted wound that uh, that they uh, are going to never let happen again. But um, so they 
what they want to do and what their strategy is. And they say this, they, you know, you read their, their doctrinal documents and their strategy documents. They are really, there's no, no shame for them to say America is stupid for uh, believing in free will and allowing the freedom of their people uh, to do all these things that, uh, you know, make tension and conflict within the society. Um, and we we do not want to fight them. You know, we don't. We what we want to do is we want to. Uh, it, it's really like in nature. In nature, there are certain uh, relationships where uh, one animal will uh, you know burrow into another animal and eventually kill it by using it as food. Okay, there's uh, many in the wasps family and and in the spider family to do this. The the host becomes the victim. Okay, and the the the, uh, the visitor or uh, the uh, and 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 the visitor you know becomes the master. That's what China is doing uh, strategically over time. You know, by uh, by getting small gains and then uh, being bold about these advantages politically and economically, uh, they have. Uh, it's like a slow growing vine that is wrapped around the spinal cord of America's economy. Our, our um, entertainment industry, our, our, our um, educational industry, our food industry, our technology industry, uh, they have basically been the slow growing vine wrapping around the spinal cord of all these essentials of the American economy where they can start squeezing us out and there's nothing we can do, that we've lost the fight before we can even react and that they can shut things down at a time and place of their choice if they needed to. But ultimately, they don't want to need to. They want this to just be this insidious journey where one day your grandkids grow up, wake up and China is the, the mandatory language in the school and English is not required. And, and only those stores that China says you can shop at are open for business. And only those homes that are showing um, an ideological uh, belief in communism through your social media are the only homes that get electricity. And you watch how quickly these insidious controls of our economy and the goods and services and essentials for humanity in America uh, can be controlled and then taken away to modify behavior. Talk about fear, talk about courage. You know, we have not had to have the courage of George Washington in our lifetimes. And it has made us uh, maybe a little bit afraid and, uh, and, and uh, unwilling to take risk unwilling to be bold, uh, just go along and get along. Let's not make trouble here. And uh, that is what China is counting on. So they know our culture better than we know it. They know the laziness of human nature to just want to get up and have my cup of coffee, go to work, come home, have a beer, watch some TV, go to bed and not worry about this stuff. The politicians will worry about that. And therein lies the problem. We have elected politicians without knowing who they are, and we've allowed them to make policies inconsistent with our constitution, and we don't do anything about it. So like our founding father said, it's a republic if you can keep it. And every generation, like Reagan said, has to fight for your freedom or you will lose it in one generation. One generation of education and then a, a laziness to fight uh, and you're going to lose it. So uh, th this is why this conversation is so important, why what is going on around us is so important, and uh, why China is uh, weaseling its way into our society quietly, secretly, and uh, so that they have the mechanisms of control to, um, to do what they need to, to win without firing a shot. Thank you for that. 
I have two more questions here for you. Number one, you mentioned earlier an electromagnetic pulse could harm our infrastructure. We, we Our infrastructure very sensitive or very susceptible to an electromagnetic pulse uh, from possibly a foreign country, but also another source of an electromagnetic pulse that I often think about in research is our sun. And throughout this yeah. conversation, we've been discussing satellites, a lot of technologies based upon satellites, um, how susceptible not only is our Earth-based infrastructure, but also these satellites. I would love to have these sort of revolutionary technologies via energy beaming, beaming from satellites, but I'm thinking if in if a large X-class solar flare pops off the sun, then that satellite could be toast. So are there ways to protect these satellites or protect our infrastructure from an EMP from the sun? Yes. Yeah, so while, while I was in uniform, we started uh, something called the Electromagnetic Defense Initiative. Uh, and since I was a commander in Joint Base San Antonio, um, we started it there in San Antonio with CPS Energy, uh, the Department of Energy, the Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense. And what we were doing is we, we know that a base is our fighting platform and the base is dependent on electricity from outside the gate. So we're only as good as the security of our electricity. And we know that that's vulnerable to, let's say, a Carrington event from the sun. So we, we started an, uh, an initiative that is now a White House hallmark program uh, designated by Trump and still going. Uh, and so it was to prove to all the energy companies in America that there are cheap off, uh, cheap off the shelf technologies to make our power grid resilient to that flare from the sun or a man-made attack. And that cars can be protected, satellites can be protected. This is something we know how to do, but those companies are private companies. And so they won't adopt something that costs money if they don't think they have to. But most of them don't think about this, and this is the reality for you know your listeners to think about. Um, someday there will be a sun flare that will actually have that plasma field coming towards Earth, and at some point America will be facing that plasma field when the plasma field hit our Earth, and then uh, you know it'll be three thousand volts going through every SCADA system, every piece of electronics. So most cars built after 2013 won't run. Uh, our power grid will go down. Uh, you know it'll blow every transformer out there unless we have these techniques and technologies that make it resilient. So there's already people that figure this out and have their emergency generator in a Faraday cage so that if there's any kind of event, it's protected, they can fire it up and everybody else is dark and they've got power as long as they have diesel fuel or whatever powers that generator. Um, so then there's the man-made that you talked about, but uh, there's no reason we can't defend this. And all you have to do is look up the San Antonio Electromagnetic Defense Initiative and you will see that they are defending grids and they are they are broadcasting this both to the government and private companies so that our power grid becomes resilient over time to a Carrington event. A Carrington event hit, hit the U.S. Uh, face on in 1859. And, um, I, you know, in the museums, you have the, uh, you know, you remember telegraph was really the only electronic thing we had at the time. And the telegraph plungers are welded shut because of the 3,000 volts that went through it because of the induced current that got created on the power lines. So it essentially destroyed the telegraph system, but it was nascent at the time. It didn't take much to get it back up and running. It was simple, but they had to rebuild it uh, because the current one was totally fried. 
Um, and we need to, uh, it is a 100% chance that it will happen again. Okay. It happened in 1859. Hopefully it's a couple hundred years from now, but if it's tomorrow, we're screwed. But if it's in 10 years from now, we're at least on a path in our government and in our private electric, uh, electricity companies that they are starting to adopt these technologies that are cheap and effective and off the shelf that have been developed in the laboratories in America uh, to make us resilient to these things. And if we're resilient to the sun, we'll be resilient to any other human being that tries to use the electromagnetic spectrum to paralyze or stop our economy electrically anywhere in our country. So it has a two, two use, one for nature, one for human um, bad behavior. When we go down the rabbit holes in our next conversation, I want to ask you about a lot of these, a lot of the specifics on these technologies. So for my last question, I wanted to ask you about what you're doing with your space built company and how, you know, yeah. because you retired in 2019, started yeah. doing private sector work. So how, what are you doing now to sort of help these technologies get out to the public? And what are you doing in terms of space yeah. these days? Yeah, so um, I will tell you that, uh, that, you know, I started with a water company to bring water to the world because in Africa, my, my dad had to build a system to bring the water up from the from the uh, uh, the stream up to the village on the hill. And uh, that water was a weapon other tribes used against us. So I started in water, but that water technology will be powered by solar power from space so you can put a water generator anywhere on the planet and draw it out of the air because there's abundant water in the air. So that company was Genesis Systems, and it's going gangbusters and um, and developing these. In fact, they were in Las Vegas in January unveiling their household unit. It's basically, it looks like your air conditioner. You put it outside your house, and now you have abundant water for your home, drawing it out of the air, even at low humidities in northern climates. It's just amazing, mm -hmm. and uh, you got to look into it. Uh, uh, that will eventually be powered by space. So you have unlimited water anywhere on the planet. Uh, you don't have to be near a river, uh, a lake, or a stream. And you don't have to desalinate water using the ocean, which makes the ocean toxic. You know, it kills the fish because of all the toxic brine and salt that you pour back into the ocean or put into a landfill to kill it for a thousand years. So I'm involved in multiple companies that are going to usher in uh, this first technique of disruptive technologies, where we usher them in in a way where it's useful to the current paradigm, but it revolutionizes the economy of America so we can stay free, secure, and healthy and prosperous. So that's what I'm doing, and uh, and we can talk about that at another time, but uh, I think this is a good start. Awesome. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much for this conversation. I love what you're doing with your uh, various companies that you're working on. I appreciate you taking the time to explain some of these concepts in great detail and share your share your story here. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. And this really comes from the fact that all people are valuable and equal in their dignity and uh, and and their deserve their ability. They deserve love, okay, and they deserve the basics in life. So what you'll see is my life after the military is uh, water, food, information and electricity uh, and, and shelter. But uh, with those five things, people can survive and throw off tyrannical governments. Um, and so uh, this is about technology revolutionizing, you know, the way we get clean water, which causes, you know, 60% of the illnesses on the planet. Um, uh, energy that's affordable, information that's true, okay? 
um, you know, transportation that's reliable, uh, structures that they can live in that are affordable. Uh, you know, that that's at the core of this. It goes beyond America. But America is the only place where we have a constitution that was uh, one nation under God and are we were moral creatures and the only constitution uh, that actually puts the emphasis on governance where it should be. And that is independent, individual freedom, liberty and self-sufficiency. Thank you very much, Steve. Yeah, thank you. Talk soon. Talk soon.